in-stent restenosis procedures can be lengthy and require flexibility in your treatment strategy. With the Philips Elka laser atherectomy catheter, you can easily and safely modify plaque to maximize luminal gain. Learn more about Elka and important safety information at philips.com backslash complex PCI. You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello, Heart Sounds listeners. I'm Shelley Wood, the managing editor at TCTMD, and this is the first episode of 2020. I hope you caught our special edition last month, where I spoke with each of the TCTMD reporters to hear about their most memorable stories of 2019. I'm going back to our regular format now, at least for this month's podcast. That means I'm going to recap some of the top stories we covered on TCTMD.com in January and give you the chance to listen in on some of the interviews we did to write those stories. I used to think of January as a slow news time for cardiovascular disease, but that was not the case this month. We managed to get to a few long-form pieces, but also saw some interesting studies coming out in the medical literature that made for good stories. Let's jump in. First things first, let me tell you about a feature story that TCTMD reporter Todd Neal pulled together on transcarotid artery revascularization, better known as TCAR. Sometimes feature stories are assigned by me, but just as often the reporters themselves come to me with ideas for features they want to chase down. In some instances, I truly have no idea what they're talking about and have to say, sure, if you think there's a story there, convince me. Todd got the idea for doing a feature on TCAR after attending some sessions at the Veith Symposium last November. TCAR, as Todd found out, has really burst onto the scene in recent years as a treatment for carotid stenosis. It's unique in that it melds both surgical and percutaneous techniques, using technology that for now is dominated by a single manufacturer, Silk Road Medical. Meanwhile, the battle for supremacy between carotid stenting and surgical carotid endarterectomy has been dragging on for the better part of two decades. TCAR, in some ways, could help bridge this divide. In 2015, the en route TCAR systems made by Silk Road Medical were approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. The procedure got an even bigger boost when the CMS agreed to cover the costs of TCAR the following year. They did that by extending the existing national coverage determination for percutaneous transluminal angioplasty when performed in patients with either symptomatic or asymptomatic carotid stenosis who have high surgical risk. Following FDA approval and CMS coverage, TCAR use started to skyrocket. And yet, as Todd wrote in his story, the number of patients that have actually been part of a TCAR study remains relatively small. According to numbers from the Crest 2 registry, TCAR rates have been increasing at a clip of more than 15% per year. There's been a corresponding drop in the number of transfemoral stenting procedures. I hope you'll read Todd's story. Simply search TCAR on TCTMD. But in the meantime, here's part of Todd's conversation with James Meschia of Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. As Meschia told Todd, he has some reservations about just how fast the community is embracing this technology, given the utter lack of studies comparing TCAR to other interventions or even to medical care. Have a listen. As a vascular neurologist seeing patients with uh, large vessel stroke, my concern is that TCAR has been rapidly adopted by largely the vascular surgical community, although other procedurists are involved as well, and that it is not, at least initially, being held up to the same standard of evidence to justify its use in certain patient populations. 
So the question remains that in the so-called high-risk patient population, uh, where TCAR is seen as potentially safer alternative to, say, transfemoral stenting, and maybe uh, comparable to endarterectomy, that we really don't know if in that patient population it's superior to intensive medical therapy. This month on DCTMD, we also had some good stories coming from papers in the medical journals. The most notable of these, I think, was a new meta-analysis from Konstantinos Katsanos of Patras University Hospital in Rion, Greece, looking once again at the risks of paclitaxel-based devices. Some of that sentence may sound like déjà vu. Yes, it was Katsanos who published a controversial meta-analysis at the tail end of 2018, setting off 12 months of head-scratching as to whether paclitaxel-coated balloons and stents could possibly cause an uptick in late mortality in PAD patients. Throughout the year, the FDA issued three separate communications offering their take on the issue, all of which remain unresolved and the devices are still on the market. In early January 2020, Katsanos and colleagues published a new meta-analysis, this one in the Journal of Vascular and Interventional Radiology, looking specifically at below-the-knee interventions. This one pooled eight randomized controlled trials totaling 1,420 patients, 97% of whom had critical limb ischemia and using five different drug-coated balloons, or DCBs. While treatment with a paclitaxel DCB reduced the incidence of target lesion revascularization compared with uncoated balloons, the paclitaxel-treated group had lower amputation-free survival. The latter was driven by greater risks of all-cause death and major amputation. Here's Katsanos explaining to reporter Lower McEwen why this latest study matters. The point of this paper is that uh, in continuum to the previous paper, uh, we are detecting a, a very, very uh, similar uh, signal of harm, where in this case, uh, numerically, there were more deaths, numerically, there were uh, more major amputations, and in a combined way, because this is a composite endpoint in case of CRI, amputation for survival is the recommended composite endpoint in case of CRI. So, over all, there seems to be a a signal of harm that A, is consistent with the previous meta-analysis, and B, perhaps can actually address uh, the the question that everybody's asking, what is the the, the reason and the cause behind this? And the cause, as we argue, may actually be uh, distal microparticle embolization, which is a very plausible explanation in case of, of the risk of computations. I don't think you'll be too surprised to hear that there has been plenty of criticism about this latest paper. I would urge you to check out Laura's story, dated January 15th. Several people pointed out that pooling the data as the authors did was not appropriate, given the different devices, protocols, follow-up times, and wound care in the different studies. What's more, some of those studies are unpublished, none of the devices are yet approved in the United States, and one has actually been yanked from the market after a signal of higher amputations. Also unsurprising, perhaps, this latest Katsanos analysis was a big talking point at the ICET meeting, which wrapped up last week in Hollywood, Florida. DCTMD's Caitlin Cox covered ICET for us again this year, and if endovascular therapies are your thing, I hope you've checked out our ICET meeting page to find all of Caitlin's work, with more stories still rolling in. 
Caitlin went to several sessions where the Katsana's data was discussed, one of which included a representative from the FDA. Quite a scoop given the protracted delays we sometimes see between analyses like these and advice from regulators. Here's the FDA's Ryan Randall, who leads the agency's Peripheral Interventional Devices Division, describing the FDA's current position at ICET. Our current thinking regarding approved devices uh, is that paclitaxel devices may remain on the market given that benefits may outweigh the risk for some patients based on clinical judgment. Uh, we also recommend that doctors should continue to discuss the benefit risks of all treatment options with their patients and continue with diligent monitoring. As I mentioned, we've been working on updates to labeling to ensure that patients are informed with risks uh, and the strengths and limitations of meta-analyses. Another journal article that led to an interesting story for us in January was a research letter in JAMA Internal Medicine by Alan Gee of St. Louis University School of Medicine and David Brown of Washington University School of Medicine, also in St. Louis, Missouri. For their paper, Brown and Gee contacted 25 of the top cardiology and heart surgery hospitals as ranked by the U.S. News & World Report. They were asking whether these hospitals offer executive cardiovascular screening programs. Of the 21 centers that responded, 18 said yes, indeed, they do offer executive screening. Overall, 71% of the executive programs included a full lipid panel, 68% offered cardiac stress testing, and 43% included cardiac CT scanning, either to assess coronary artery calcium or to visualize the coronary arteries. Cardiovascular counseling was included in two programs and an exercise consultation in one center. In total, there were 12 cardiovascular screening tests, plus a resting ECG, available through 28 different screening programs, with some institutions offering both streamlined and more comprehensive premier or gold packages. Of note, there were big differences between hospitals in terms of which types of tests were included and different prices, which at the Cleveland Clinic, for example, ranged from $5,000 to $25,000. At the Brigham and Women's Hospital Executive Program, the $2,500 cost included a resting ECG and lipid panel. By contrast, the full-day executive health program at Atlantic Health Morristown Medical Center included abdominal aortic ultrasound, CAC score, cardiac stress testing, cardiovascular counseling, carotid artery ultrasound, CT scan, resting ECG, and C-reactive protein, homocysteine, and lipoprotein A measurements in addition to the lipid panel. All that for a cool $11,000. Michael O'Reardon covered this paper for TCTMD. He reached out to ACC President Richard Kovacs of Indiana University School of Medicine for his reaction. Kovacs called the executive physical a niche screening program, one that has very little overhead but high profit margins for the hospitals that offer them. Kovacs noted that professional societies are focused on the general population and focus on scientific evidence, which is one of the reasons why they don't weigh in on testing in this highly selected executive group. If the hospitals selling and conducting the screening packages want to show their value, he said, it's on them to generate the data. Brown, not surprisingly, was a little more critical. In his opinion, programs like these aren't just a waste of rich people money. Here's part of Mike's conversation with Brown. If somebody's got the money and they want to do all this testing, what's the harm in that if they want to kind of undergo a comprehensive sort of a scan of their heart? What would be the drawbacks of that, in your opinion? Uh, well, I mean, a few of them we mentioned in the article, which is necessarily brief because of the word limit for these research letters. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's a few responses to that. One is that almost all of these hospitals are teaching hospitals. 
So first of all, it teaches a very bad message that if you're rich, you get different care if you're not. Mm-hmm. That you, if you're rich, you can get care for which there's no evidence to support. Um, so there's a whole um, educational part of it which is harmful. Mm-hmm. And then there's this downstream effect, this cascade effect, for things that are found that may either worry patients and cause psychological stress, or things that are found that require further testing that lead to potentially complications, and in in theory, even death. Mm -hmm. So there certainly is some downstream risk of it, and without any evidence of benefits, it's hard to make the argument that there is a a risk-benefit ratio that's favorable for anyone. I myself spent the month of January delving into some long-form stories. The first was a look at the emerging body of research, all of it observational so far, addressing the risks and benefits of PCI in patients with a current or historic cancer diagnosis. This is a field of growing interest, and my story was an effort to sum up the limited data to date, but also to probe this idea that physicians who do PCI are taking what one expert called a kid-glove approach to cancer patients. Search Cancer Conundrum on TCTMD to find that story from earlier this month. I spent last week trying to get a handle on mitraclip use in the United States. This was sparked in part by a press release from the manufacturer, Abbott, announcing that a new randomized trial had gotten the green light from the FDA. This new study, Repair MR, will compare surgery versus the clip in patients with severe degenerative MR who are at intermediate risk for surgery, so a slightly lower risk cohort than currently approved in the U.S. Meanwhile, it's been almost a year since the FDA expanded the mitraclip indication to permit its use in functional MR with strict parameters regarding suitable candidates. That's only half of the equation for doctors, of course, hoping to offer this therapy. How to pay for it is the other. In two weeks' time on Valentine's Day, which I can't help but think is intentional, the CMS will release its proposal for covering percutaneous mitral repair for functional disease. Most of the people I spoke with for my story told me that the growth of the mitroclip procedure in the United States has been limited not only by that pending CMS decision, but also the lingering confusion over the differences between the COAPT results and Mitra FR. Cybel Carr of Los Robles Hospital and Medical Center in Thousand Oaks, California, as well as Gilbert Tang of Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, both told me that they've seen an uptick in referrals for MitraClip and that they think the heart failure community is increasingly convinced that their patients might benefit. Michael Mack, however, at Baylor Scott and Whiteheart Hospital in Plano, Texas, who was the co-PI for COAPT, says he's not yet seen an increase in referrals and thinks heart failure docs aren't yet on board. My story took something of an unexpected twist when both Mac and Tang told me about the simmering controversy over the choice of endpoints in Repair MR. You'll have to check out my January 24th story to get those details. But Mac and I also talked about the numbers of patients treated worldwide with the mitroclip in the past year, inferred from sequential Abbott announcements, then tried to estimate U.S. figures. Abbott declined to provide me with specific numbers or to comment on the repair MR controversy. But doing the math, Michael Mack thinks that 10,000 patients is a good guess for the number of U.S. patients who've been treated with the CLIP since the expanded FDA approval last year. Here's Mack telling me why he thinks this pace of usage isn't so surprising. It has not expanded as rapidly as you might expect from what happened in Tavern. It's never going to have the rapidity of adoption it's never going to have the growth rate. 
uh, even though people feel that the people with the disease is a larger population. Uh, and part of the reason is that it's harder to diagnose and it's a technically more difficult procedure to perform than TABR is. It's harder to get good results. So I think that people that think that this is TABR redux, you know, deja vu all over again is not going to happen. The expectations of the rate of clinical adoption have to be much more um, uh, tenured and nuanced compared to TABR. So my guess is, before seeing these numbers, that there were 10,000 patients in the U.S. last year. Okay. And if you look at, you know, if you look at the U.S. as 50% of the worldwide market, that makes sense. To put that in context, you know, there were probably 75,000 TABR procedures done in the U.S. last year. That's it for the January 2020 edition of Heart Sounds. You didn't hear from Yael Maxwell in this episode. That's because Yael was running around at the STS meeting in New Orleans as this month's Heart Sounds was in the works. As I speak, Yael is hard at work pulling together our coverage of this major U.S. surgery meeting. Not unlike the EACS meeting late last year in Europe, STS has proven to be surprisingly controversial and polarizing. As a reporter and editor trying to figure out how to cover some of these explosive sessions, controversy and strong opinions can make that job mm, that much more interesting. But I have noticed a trend wherein the most outspoken people at conference podiums or on social media are often also the ones who ignore our interview requests or refuse to answer questions that strike to the heart of the issue. Some days it feels like everyone has a strong opinion, but no one wants to be challenged about it. Put another way, please don't assume that we at TCTMD are not asking tough questions. It's that no one wants to answer them on the record. If you have something you do want to tell us, or a story tip, or something we should just in general know about, please get in touch. I'm Shelley Wood too on Twitter, or you can find my email on TCTMD. It is swood at tctmd.com. Thanks for listening to Heart Sounds. Love listening to Heart Sounds? Check out all new original series from TCTMD featuring Rock's Heart Radio with Dr. Roxanna Moran and Talking Points with Dr. C. Michael Gibson. These episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud.